20 years ago, there was an entrepreneur named Patrick McGinnis. He coined a term that has come to be a major part of our modern world establishment. Uh, watching the effects of people living their lives through social media groups that they had subscribed to, McGinnis began a campaign of trying to wake people up from their almost clinical dependence on checking and rechecking these social media sites to make sure that they weren't missing out on some amazing fun that someone else was having. The term that McGinnis coined has been called FOMO, fear of missing out, FOMO. And it's woven its way into our collective consciousness. Statistics which came out last year proved that well over half of those on social media believe that if they do not check status updates daily, then they are missing out on major life events and national news. Can you imagine being tethered to something like that? Some of us do know what it's like to be tethered to something like that. Psychologists have actually begun to do a great deal of study on the phenomenon, and they have found that those with compulsive forms of FOMO, fear of missing out, subject themselves to regular doses of envy, jealousy, and disappointment. We do it to ourselves. We're learning more now than ever before about some of the negative effects of living too connected to technology, and we're seeing that it's a real problem. However, I don't think that we can or should blame faceless technology for all of our woes of stuff like this. Human beings have always suffered from some form of fear of missing out. We've always felt that loss or that hole in our life as though we were created for a more meaningful relationship than what we are actually experiencing at that moment. I think I could make a pretty good armchair psychologist's argument that all of the vices in this world, from gambling to drunkenness, everything in between, it could be traced back to that one idea of a feeling as though you are missing out on something bigger than what you are now experiencing. And so we self-medicate, as it were, and we try to fill that void, stuff that missing piece with anything and everything that's accessible to us because we have this fear of missing out on something more purposeful. And that's why today's message or today's passage of Scripture is so very important. You see, none of us want to miss out on big things in life. We all want to be included and invited. Each of us wants to receive that text message from a friend that says, hey, I saved you a seat, isn't it? It's a weird thing that happens whenever you get that text from somebody, maybe at a restaurant or at a concert or maybe even at church, saved you a seat. It, it means something a lot more than any of us would probably care to describe. What I've been praying this whole week is that the Lord will do today that he will shoot you a message this morning, write to you, and he will tell you, I have saved you a seat. I have a place for you, like we've already sung. Our story in 2 Samuel chapter 9, it opens this morning on a, a new administration, a new king in Israel, King David. 
If you've read First and Second Samuel, you know him as the giant killer, the shepherd boy, the musician. He is many of our favorite character in all of the Bible. He was deeply flawed. He was not perfect. My goodness, he was not perfect. Deeply flawed. Yet he was a man after God's own heart who lived passionately for him. And when he sinned, he quickly repented. David has finally ascended to the throne of Israel. It's been a long and circuitous route for this young man. This power that he has finally gotten. Those of you who've read 1 Samuel, you'll recently remember that all of this took place in order for this to come to place. That he was anointed as king over Israel much earlier, probably as a teenager, very likely as a teenager, But for years, he submitted to the the rule of a man by the name of King Saul. David played the role of armor bearer to Saul for quite some time. And when it was found out that he was a gifted musician, Saul actually asked him, invited him to come to his inner court and to begin regularly ministering to him through singing and playing an instrument. But that relationship between Saul and David obliterated The Spirit of God departed from Saul, and in its place an evil spirit settled on this king of Israel. What happens from Saul is that he he makes even more unwise choices than ever before, if that's possible. He is perpetually troubled in his mind, and he took it out on David, trying to kill him multiple times. In fact, Were it not for the friendship that David had forged with Saul's son, Jonathan, Saul very likely would have killed David. So years were spent on the run from Saul. David left all of that behind. David, along with his detachment of of guerrilla-style soldiers, his mighty men of valor, they live out in caves and open fields for years. They they traveled around seeking to do good for God's people, kind of like the original A-team is how I see them. But all the while... They are on the run from the government. He really is Hannibal. My goodness, I never really pieced this together. All the while, King Saul is trying to hunt him down. He's fighting his own wars, but in his time off, he is making David public enemy number one. All of that is past now in 2 Samuel 9. Saul and his son Jonathan, they died in the exact same battle. King David is on his rightful throne. And for the last four chapters in 2 Samuel, the author of Scripture has detailed his reign. He's listed all of those who are under him, all of the scholars, all of the the people who keep the records, and all of those who are his right-hand men. For the most part, David's been accepted by the nation. There's some exceptions. Other surrounding countries have sent ambassadors to David and Israel with gifts welcoming this newfound power. And it seems as though David is experiencing his very first season of peace in his life. Or at least peace since he was a young boy keeping watch over his father's flock. And that's why in the middle of this rest, David looks to the members of his court and he asks in verse 1, Is there still anyone who is left of the house of Saul that I might show him kindness For Jonathan's sake. David remembers the kindness of Jonathan from so many years ago when he warned David that his father Saul was 
seeking to kill him. More importantly than just remembering the kindness of Jonathan, David remembers the promise or the covenant that he had made with Jonathan, the vow that he had made with him. Essentially, the two had agreed that David would not follow the regular course of nations. Think of it. Whenever a new king would arise to power, because he lived in fear of some son or some heir to the throne deposing him, he would oftentimes go to that family member and he would destroy, he would massacre the rest of the king's family or the old king's family. But David and Jonathan make this pact, they make this covenant that that is not how David will react when he comes to power. David tells Jonathan that he would allow Jonathan's family to go on living a peaceful life. And so now we assume this is decades later after that old oath. David tries to make good on that promise. He wants to show kindness to Jonathan's family. If you've got a study Bible this morning, you probably have a note off to the side to that word kindness uh, in verse 1. It's not that David just wants to be nice here. David's not just trying to to be a better person and and live more outwardly and, and do really good things as the newfound king. No, the Hebrew word here is one that's confused and confounded scholars for centuries. It's the word hesed. Most scholars would say that there really isn't a good English equivalent for this word hesed. It's oftentimes translated as kindness that we see in verse 1. Loving kindness is another way that it's, it's translated. But at its heart, hesed is more than just doing kind things to somebody. There's a legal obligation attached to it. That's why some translators actually render this word covenant faithfulness, that he wants to do some covenant faithfulness to a son of Jonathan. Now, here's the thing. We in the Western world, we, we hear something about legal terms and a binding contract and all of that. We, we start to think, well, this kind of cheapens the word. You know, after all, what's the big deal of doing a kind thing when you are legally obligated to do a kind thing? But I challenge you on that. I think you'll find that this word is most often used to describe a covenant between two parties, one very often much more powerful than the other. That's certainly the case here. David didn't have to make a covenant with Jonathan. He chose to. He chose to preserve Jonathan's family. Now, all of this is important because his said, this word for loving kindness or kindness or covenant faithfulness, Hesed is often used to describe the Lord's relationship to us. His loving kindness towards us is a legal obligation that He lovingly and willingly swore to us. And just because it's a licensed oath doesn't mean that there's not any emotion or love involved here. If I still have to convince you of that, husbands, go home and pull out that marriage license. That is a legally binding contract. But you know that it is so much more. Or I hope you know it is so much more than just I got to stay married to you for another year kind of thing. There's emotion and there's love attached to it. There's a, a binding contract out of a free will love 
for that individual. And so King David, on his throne, looks out over his kingdom. He's experiencing peace for the very first time, at least in a long time. And he reflects on all those who have sacrificed for him to get to where he is in this position. And upon pondering that, he decides that now is the best time to fulfill his oath to Jonathan. Is there still anyone who is left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Isn't that a strange way to ask that question? Is there anyone? Wouldn't David know? Well, actually, the reason that David asks the question in that way, is there still anyone, is because that there had been a great commotion the day of Saul's and Jonathan's death on the battlefield. And all Saul's household had kind of grabbed everything and ran when they heard the unexpected news of the death of the king. 2 Samuel chapter 4 actually kind of gives us the the behind-the-scenes look of what happens there. Jonathan's servants and family, they vacate the premises. They quickly run for safety. Either they didn't know about the covenant that David and Jonathan had made, or they thought there's no way David's going to actually observe this covenant. And so seeing the possibility of a new king in town, their old king passing away, they grab everything and they run for the hills. And all of that uproar and all the vacating found David not actually knowing, is anyone in Saul's and Jonathan's family still alive? They had been so successful in getting out of Dodge that they had removed all trace. He couldn't seek them out, couldn't find them. And so he asked the question to his court, and somehow, some way, there was one servant of Saul's that was still hanging around. His name is Ziba. If we could watch 2 Samuel chapter 9 on a movie screen this morning, I guarantee you that the casting director would choose someone shifty-eyed and sneering to play Ziba. The guy's a snake. Nobody knows that yet but he's a snake. He's a wolf in sheep's clothing, and it seems as all anyone knew about him in David's administration was that he was here when we got here. He served Saul. So if anyone knows anything of Saul or Jonathan's survivors, it would be Ziba. And so they call him to the throne room, and in verse 2, this servant of the house of Saul, whose name was Ziba, he comes to him David says, are you Ziba? He says, at your service. He's putting on a show. Verse 3, then the king said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul to whom I may show kindness of God to? Now let me paint in some of the picture that's missing here. Ziba is actually, most scholars believe, piecing the, the narrative of Scripture together, Ziba is actually living on Jonathan's estate, on his old land. He is the unlawful steward in Jonathan's absence. He is benefiting benefiting from Jonathan's death when all he was was just a servant in the palace. He saw Saul's and Jonathan's death as an opportunity to get a little more land, to get a nicer house. And so hearing David's plans to show someone in Saul's family kindness, he knows that he has to answer truthfully, lest the king find out that he's going to lie to him, But he's going to try to, I think, he's going to try to talk David out of doing anything too drastic. Like giving the survivor of Jonathan's household 
his old house and land back. So the latter part of verse 3, Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan who's lame in his feet. Some translators actually put a but in there, but he is lame in his feet. You can read that last line as an effort to discredit him. Yeah, Jonathan's got a son, but he's just a cripple. He's nobody of note. Truth be told, 2 Samuel chapter 4 gives us the background as to how this young man, this son of Jonathan, became lame. In all of the chaos that ensued after Jonathan and Saul's death with the king's household not knowing about David's covenant to protect them, there was a young nurse who had swept up Jonathan's five-year-old boy in her arms and she began to, ran, to run as fast as she possibly could. But she stumbled. And she fell with the child in her arms and she crushed the boy's feet under her. It's ironic that her efforts to save him had actually rendered him paralyzed for the rest of his life. Giving Ziba the ammunition to say, yeah, he's a son, but he's just a cripple. I can almost see the disappointment on Ziba's face as it's obvious that his dismissal of Jonathan's son only being a cripple doesn't land on David. David doesn't care one bit about this son's physical ability or lack thereof. So in verse 4, the king says, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, indeed, he's in the house of Maker, the son of Amiel in Lodabar. Again, we need to do a little research here. This, this land of Lodabar, doesn't it sound magical? It kind of sounds like Xanadu or something. Lodabar, it is anything but that. Lodabar literally means no pasture. No food. And again, I, I just can't help but read into this, this judgmental cutting voice of Ziba, giving all this new information with a slight in his voice. Yeah, Jonathan's got a son, but he's just a cripple, and he's just living off of someone else's hard work. He's on the wrong side of the railroad tracks. He's nobody from nowhere. Don't worry yourself with him, King David. David doesn't care. He sends for this lost son of his dear friend, and this is where we are really introduced to this boy, who's a man now, and now he's given a name. Verse 6. Now when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, had come to David, he fell on his face and prostrated himself. And then David said, Mephibosheth? And he answered, Here is your servant. Let's stop. Two things in this verse that need to be kind of teased out. His name and his posture. What kind of name is Mephibosheth? I know all of you who are expecting, that's, that's first on your list. That's what you're going to name your son coming out. Growing up in church, I have heard this name ever since I was a child. In fact, my pastor that I grew up under had a powerful sermon, powerful sermon that I remember to this day about Mephibosheth. And so this has been one of my favorite stories since I was a kid. And with some of these stories, with growing up in the faith, growing up in the church, we become so familiar with Scripture. So I wish that I could see it with fresh eyes. So every now and then I do this weird thing that I'll ask Alexa or I'll ask Siri, hey, what do you know about blah, 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 blah? 
So most of y'all know my love-hate relationship with Siri and Alexa, and yesterday's question didn't prove any help. I said, Alexa, tell me what you know about Mephibosheth. To which she replied, playing songs by the Mississippi chef now. I don't know who the Mississippi chef is, but I think he just got his first listen on Amazon Music. I don't know of anybody else listening to his songs. Mephibosheth. From the mouth of shame. Who would name their son that? From the mouth of shame. We're not told the situation surrounding Mephibosheth's birth. We don't know if maybe there's some dark story behind his coming into this world. It may be that this is a name that he started going by post being paralyzed. We don't know. From the mouth of shame. Whatever the case, this son of royal blood had been living in absolute filth and squalor, paralyzed in this world, overcome by shame, living a meaningless, forgotten life until one day he got a knock on his door. He shuffles to the hut's opening and he finds a royal dispatch waiting for him outside and they are commanding him to make an appearance before the king whom all he knew of David was that he was the enemy. He was the one that he had to run from when he was five years old. He's the reason why he's been crippled all these years. Or that's what he thinks. I think Mephibosheth thinks it's all over. It's been a good run. Not really, but this is the end. The decades of hiding in Lodabar, this is how it's all going to end. The king is going to call him to the palace, and since he's the only one, since he's the only living heir of Saul, he's going to have him publicly executed. It's all over. David is finally going to be the king in Israel, and there's going to be no ifs, ands, buts about it. Mephibosheth, the last of the line, he thinks he's going to be killed. Mephibosheth goes with the men, he arrives at the palace shuffles down the corridor on his crutches. I wonder if he remembered any of it from years ago. He enters the throne room and he throws himself prostrate before the king. Here's your servant. And David said to him in verse 7, Do not fear. David saw it. Written all over his face. He thought he was coming for punishment. Do not fear, for I will surely show you kindness for Jonathan, your father's sake, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your grandfather, and you shall eat bread at my table continually. Can you just imagine Mephibosheth's mourning? <laughs> Come again? He bowed himself and said to the king, What is your servant? That you should look upon such a dead dog 
as I. I don't have to tell you in Middle Eastern culture, the dog is, I mean, you call somebody a dog and it's, it's fighting words. And he calls, himself, he calls himself, I'm not even a dog, I'm a dead dog. I am purposeless. I've got no reason for existing, king. Why would you do this to me? Why would you reinstate my father's land to me? Why would you welcome me to your father's home or to my father's old home? Why would I have a place at your table? Well, David doesn't answer him. <laughs> He's the king. He doesn't have to. All he does in verse 9 is he calls for Ziba, Saul's servant, and he said to him, I've given to you, your master's son, all that belonged to Saul and all his house. You, therefore, and your sons and your servants shall work the land for him, and you shall bring in the harvest that your master's son may have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's son, shall eat bread at my table always. Ziba's thinking, I knew this was going to happen. One artist pointed out the fact that Mephibosheth was invited to sit and eat at David's table. It wasn't just for sustenance purpose. He was going to be well taken care of by Ziba and all the many servants that he had. He was going to be able to live off his own land. The reason David said, you can sit at my table, is that when he sat at the king's table, when he scooted up under the king's tablecloth, he could no longer see his brokenness. I don't know if that's true, but that's good. You will eat at my table so that when you're close to me, you won't be broken anymore, Mephibosheth. Couldn't see his lame legs anymore. Chuck Swindoll wrote this, imagining what a dinner at David's table must have been like hereafter. I love the way he writes this. He says, imagine this. The meal is fixed, and the long come the members of the king's family and their invited guests. Amnon comes walking in, clever and witty. He comes to the table first. Then there's Joab, one of the, the guests. He's muscular, his skin bronzed from the sun, walking tall like the experienced soldier that he is. Next through the doorway comes Absalom, long hair flowing, desired by all from the crown of his head to the soles of his feet. There is no blemish on him. Then arrives Tamar, the beautiful daughter of David. She slips into her seat. In a minute or two, in comes Solomon. He's been in his study all day, but he finally slips away from his work and his books, and he makes his way to the table. And they're all seated, but then they hear in the corridor a clump, drag, clump, drag, clump, drag. And here comes Mephibosheth hobbling along into the king's dinner party. He smiles and he humbly joins the others as he takes his place at the table as one of the king's children. And the tablecloth of grace covers his broken feet. He shouldn't have been there. But the king had saved him a seat. Look, I don't want to insult your intelligence, but I hope you're tracking with me this morning that this isn't just some ancient story about a king long dead who did a nice thing to a handicapped individual millennia ago. This is the story of us. We are Mephibosheth. Every single one of us. Yesterday, I had the honor of preaching the funeral of a dear saint, Brother Werner Bracey. I, 
Sadly, I had never met him before. And so I wanted to learn a little bit more about his life. And so I sat down with his daughter, Gail, and I tried to learn a little bit about, a little bit about him so that I could honor his life. And we talked at length, Don and Gail and I in their living room. And near the end of the conversation, I started kind of closing my notebook, everything that I'd been scribbling notes on and was going to try to compile into a, a funeral sermon later. And I asked Gail, I said, is there anything else about your dad that I could say that you would want to be remembered? And Miss Gail said, well, he fostered over 100 children in his retirement years. I opened the notebook back up. I thought I misheard her. Say that again. He fostered over 100 kids in his retirement years. It was true. In fact, fostering and adoption was so much a part of his life that everyone who knew him just kind of assumed that I knew. <laughs> I found out later that he and his wife had actually been recognized by the state of Tennessee twice as foster parents of the year for their selfless dedication and allowing their home to be open for respite care and foster care for decades. And so since my meeting with Miss Gale and thinking about Brother Bracey and all the children that he had in his home, I've been kind of living in Ephesians 1. It's been rattling around in my head where Paul reminds us what our Savior has done for us. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, by which He made us accepted and the Beloved. Did you hear those two words that I just read? I read a lot more than two words. But two words, adopted, accepted. Those have to be some of the most powerful words in all of the English language because inherent to them being spoken means that their opposite counterparts are being made untrue, no longer abandoned, not rejected. You've been adopted and accepted by the king. We Mephibosheths were left abandoned and rejected by this world in our rebellion against God. Like Mephibosheth, we were of royal blood being created in the very image of God, yet we were made cripple from our fall. We lived in exile from the king, but we were brought near to him because of a covenant promise that he made with us. We have been called before the king, and we have been given gifts based upon the merits of another. And now... We are called to sit at the king's table and we are invited to eat at his table as one of his own sons. Somebody needs to say amen to that. That is who we are. Accepted and adopted. 
The sovereign king of the universe is using this story to tell you, to text you this morning, I've saved you a seat. You belong beside me at my table. Don't miss that. Don't ignore that this morning. You're invited. Come. Thanks for listening to New Hope Church's podcast. If you would like to listen to more content from our church, follow us at newhopefwbc.com.